Lucifer's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Part 6 The Devil and the Deep Green Sea Welcome, friends, mythheads, patrons, YouTube podcast listeners, and blog readers all. Welcome to your courtside seat to history in the making. That's right. It's the wordplay that was promised. The hidden key to understanding all the merling and squisher symbolism, and, more importantly, the key to unlocking the weirwood net. Ever wonder why there are so many fish people legends on the margins of A Song of Ice and Fire? Have you ever wondered what the hell Patchface is talking about? What's up with the ridiculously fishy symbolism of House Manderley or House Valarion? Well, there's a way to understand all of this. And doing so will actually tell us a ton about the Weirwoods and the Greenseers, which is what we really care about. But only if you have eyes to see. And we are going to give you those eyes today. I say we because I actually can't take credit for this discovery that we're going to be exploring. For the most part... I do tend to write about my own theories and let other people develop their theories on their own, but every once in a while, one of my friends and collaborators discovers a symbol or metaphor or theory which is so central to the action that I simply have to write about it. You may remember the first episode of the Moons of Ice and Fire series, Prelude to a Chill, which was largely based around the theory that Night's Queen was actually something more like an ice priestess, like an icy version of Melisandre, as opposed to a white or a female other. That theory belongs to Dern Durndon, a very old friend of mine from the Westeros.org forums, who has also just recently become the Zodiac patron for House Pisces. Thanks for your support, buddy. He wrote it a few years back on the forums, and it's always seemed to be on the mark to me. And then when I began researching to write about the others, I found this idea about Night's Queen to be so central to understanding the others that we couldn't avoid it. And so, with his permission and collaboration, I brought the theory to you and built upon it. We're going to do something very similar today. Ravenous Reader, the poetess of the Nenimones, is the one who discovered the wordplay-based symbolism that we're about to unveil, and as you're about to see, it's quite the discovery. I'm practically green with envy for not seeing it first. I kid, of course, and I'm more than happy to give all credit and aplomb to Ravenous Reader for this one. Additionally, we in the community, including Ravenous, myself, and countless, countless others, have been developing these ideas over the last two years or so on Twitter and Westeros.org and wherever else. So it's become a bit of a community effort. And it's an idea whose time has long been at hand. And so I'm honored and privileged to have Ravi's blessing to guide you beneath the waves and into the green sea. To be honest, we've mostly been ignoring water symbolism, apart from discovering the waves of moonblood symbolism that is tied to the concept of bleeding stars and floods caused by moon meteors. But apart from that, I've been skillfully sidestepping like a hopping patch face all the water symbolism that has been, quite frankly, popping up everywhere that we go. Take the sea dragon myth, for example. The sea dragon, a legend ostensibly about a sea monster, turns out to instead be about a weirwood boat. Still something large that belongs in the sea, and maybe it had a nice sea monster for a masthead, who knows. Of course, the primary significance of seeing the truth of the Weirwood boat was that it led us to discover the Weirwood throne, 
the weirwood crown, and all the rest of the green seer symbolism that clings to the Grey King like barnacles on the hull of a weirwood submarine. Ultimately, the sea dragon myth seems to be less about Poseidon-related matters, if you will, and more about a person who possesses the living fire of the weirwoods, as well as the fire or power of those fiery dragon meteors, which are also a part of the sea dragon myth. In other words, it's actually a version of the Azorahai story about a dragon-blooded green seer and meteor swords, but coded in the language of the sea. Sea monsters and boats and a mermaid wife, a drowned god who brings fire out of the sea and battles the storm god, and a nation of pirates and mariners who were taught to make longships and fish. That is the sea dragon and grey king mythology. Now in the Weirwood Compendium 5, to ride the green dragon, we've introduced the green dragon motif and explored all the symbolism that goes along with that. Symbolism that revolves around Rego and Regal and Daenerys, with assists from people like Quentin and Aegon the Unworthy and even Moondancer the green dragon. Funny thing, though. Just like the sea dragon symbolism, the green dragon symbolism again leads us to the idea of a dragon-blooded green seer who sounds a damn lot like Azor High Reborn, and it too seems to use watery language to do so. As we saw in the last episode, Rhaegal, the green dragon, is heavily tied to thunderbolt and storm symbolism, which of course comes from the ironborn myth of the Grey King and the storm god's thunderbolt, which is watery mythology. But it's watery mythology about meteor thunderbolts and obtaining the fire of the gods. The green dragon is also linked to wildfire, which is basically liquid fire, a combination of water and fire. It's also green, and it's associated with magicians, the alchemists who make it, and dragons, the Targaryens who use it. Wildfire even burns on the water, as we know well from the Battle of the Blackwater, which we're going to talk about today. So it really is like sea dragon fire. And Tyrion even compares the wildfire at the Battle of the Blackwater directly to dragonfire. Then at the end of To Ride the Green Dragon, we took a look at Rhaegal's scenes in Meereen, and we found our friendly green dragon linked to a bunch of wordplay about drowned fire and fire that washes over things. More importantly, we saw Rhaegal linked to a bunch of sea dragon symbolism, starting with Quentin's plan to ride the green dragon, being compared to King Aegon the Unworthy, building those wooden dragons full of wildfire which catastrophically caught on fire in the Kingswood, with those burning wooden dragons being amazing sea dragon symbols, if you recall. Then there was Quentin seeing Rhaegal uncoiling like some great green serpent in the climax scene of the Dragon Tamer chapter, which puts us in mind of the sea dragon myth again, since Naga means cobra or snake and is tied to a whole host of water dragon and water snake symbolism. We even saw sea dragon symbolism in the placement of Regal's egg on Drogo's pyre during the alchemical wedding. It was surrounded by Drogo's black river of darkness hair, which gives us the image of the green dragon as a sea dragon swimming in a river of darkness. The watery language is not only found in people and dragons who symbolize Azor Ahai the green seer, quote-unquote, but also in some of the actual Azor Ahai mythology itself. That's right. According to what Melisandre tells Stannis, Azor Ahai reborn is supposed to be a hero reborn in the sea. The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies, a hero reborn in the sea, living dragons hatched from dead stone. This has never really made much sense, beyond the idea of the sea dragon as a stone dragon moon meteor that falls into the sea and drowns islands. 
since the moon meteors which drank the fire of the sun do represent Azor Ahai reborn in a certain sense. Additionally, Azor Ahai being reborn in the sea does seem like a good match for all the Grey King and Drowned God mythology about being reborn in the sea and bringing fire out of the sea, although these ideas are still admittedly somewhat cryptic. What we can say is that again and again, the clues about Azor Ahai being a green seer seem to come to us in the language of Leviathan, in the speech of the Green Sea. Green Sea. The clues about the green seers are found in the Green Sea. We have a sea dragon and a green dragon, both of which are talking about green seer dragons, and in the language of the Green Sea. What kind of dreadful wordplay is this? Why, it's the Green Sea wordplay of the one and only ravenous reader, of course. Well, it's George R. R. Martin's wordplay, but Ravenous is the one who sniffed it out. George is basically having a roaring good time with the wordplay of Green Seer and Green Sea. It's all very clever and witty, but the ultimate point is this. The undersea realm, the Green Sea, is serving as a metaphor for the weirwood net where the Green Seers live. When things happen under the sea, they are often metaphors for things which happen inside the weirwood net, which we can think of as the Green Sea, S-E-E. A dragon that comes from the sea, like the sea dragon, or Azor Ahai being reborn in the sea, both are really talking about Azor Ahai the dragon being reborn in the Green Sea of the Weirwood Net. See? A Green Sea or dragon is a sea dragon, in that he is a dragon person that inhabits the Green Sea of the Weirwood Net, where the Green Seers live. Yes, that's right, my friends. From Patchface's riddles, to drowning moon maidens, to Nimble Dick's favorite squisher legends, to Azor High being a hero reborn in the sea, it's all really about the weirwood net and the freaky things that go on in there. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. So much to discuss. So here's how the rest of this episode is going to go. We're going to run through a bunch of fairly quick examples of Azor High reborn people drowning and transforming in the sea in various ways, and then we'll go in-depth on one example in particular, Cough Cough Davos the Blackwater, which sort of ties everything together. Then we'll switch over to Nissa Nissa figures drowning in the sea, and we'll do something similar. We'll go through several of them fairly quickly, and then we'll pick one to go deep on in particular. We'll go deep on one in particular. We'll, deep, we'll go deep ones in particular. Okay, all right. Let's dive in. But not before we thank the thank yous. Not only are we grateful for Stanley Black for our intro music and to John Walsh for our flamenco music, not only do we humbly thank Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel for performing the vocal readings, as well as the man himself, George R.R. R. Martin, for writing a song of Ice and Fire. No, on this special day, we must not only thank our Mythheads and Patreon sponsors who make all of this happen, we must stop and single out our two new dragon patrons. Yes, Three Heads has the dragon. Joining Bronsteri's The Wise Old Dragon, I'd like to give a warm Mythhead welcome to Vesperi's The Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon, whose scales are dark as smoke, whose horns, wingbones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, and whose eyes are two black moons. It is said that Vesperi's is the secret spawn of Meraxes, and is known by some as the Phoenix of the Hellholt. So we have a wise old dragon, a terrifying shadowfire dragon, and for the third head of the Patreon dragon, we have a stoned dragon. 
That's right, not a stone dragon, a stoned dragon. So please give a hazy, smoky myth head welcome to Falcoris, the shag dragon, whose black stone scales are covered in purple and green 70s shag carpeting, and whose eyes, horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are as gray as a puff of smoke. It is said that Falcoris, who has little interest in fighting unless roused, once blew a smoke ring large enough to encircle the black walls of Volantis. If you'd like to join the starry host and get a cool myth head nickname, and most of all help the podcast thrive and grow, then head on over to LuciferMeansLightbringer.com and click on the Patreon link. That's also where you can find the matching text to this podcast if you'd like to read along, as well as a link to the live YouTube performance of this podcast. One final note, this week's live stream, and that's for Sunday, September 23rd, will be on my new Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel. It will, in fact, be a Between Two Weirwoods discussion panel on the topic of religion, featuring Brendan Beefish, Gretchen Ellis, and San Rixian. And if you want to see it, you'll need to go subscribe to the Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel. That's Between Two Weirwoods with a number two, as in a digit, a numeral. So I'll see you at 3 Eastern, everyone. Now on with today's episode. The Merling That Was Promised This fishy section is brought to you by the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, by Viseria Sunbreaker, by Matthias Mormont, the seagoat of the bottomless depths, by Count Magpie the Rude, the dinky giant hornblower of the Oslo Fjord, by the Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence, and by Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, a sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grand Maester of the Zithomancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Calling Azorahai a Merling is my fun way of saying that Azorahai is our hero reborn in the sea. I was going to title this section with the more straightforward A Hero Reborn in the Sea, but then my spirit of fun kicked in and my love of Merlings. So, Azorahai was a merling, but not really. His rebirth is simply tied to the Weirwoods, which is an idea that we are well familiar with, since we discovered it already by other means. That's what's so great about the -the under-the-sea symbolism. It's going to interlock seamlessly with and confirm all the best theories that are right and good, because the -the under-the-sea wordplay is right and good. It all starts with the concept of the Weirwoods as a fishing weir, I think. I've quoted this line several times by now, but I'm going to quote it again and think about the watery realm as the realm of the greenseers as you listen. For men, time is a river. We are trapped in its flow, hurtling from past to present, always in the same direction. The lives of trees are different. They root and grow and die in one place, and that river does not move them. The oak is the acorn. The acorn is the oak, and the weirwood. A thousand human years are a moment to a weirwood, and through such gates you and I may gaze into the past. A fishing weir spans a river and is not moved by it, very like a bridge. And in fact, some weirs do serve as bridges. The weirwoods are something like a cosmic fishing weir or bridge, which spans the cosmic river of time. This is very like Yggdrasil, of course, the world tree that spans all nine realms, and you can see how it is literally true of the Weirwoods, which are indeed gates through which the Greenseers can gaze through and see the past, and perhaps a bit of the future. 
They do indeed exist partially outside the river of time, unmoved by it, and even more, they seem to have access to any point in that river. In this schema, men are the fish trapped in the river, with the fishing weir of the weirwood net occasionally plucking a fish man from the river of time and trapping him in the weir, which is akin to plucking him from the realm of mortal men and giving him godlike powers. You can see how well the metaphor works here. The green seer is physically pinioned to the weirwoods, like a fish caught in a weir or a net. But in doing so, the green seer is freed from the river of time and the mortality of humans. This is the theme of most Odin myths and shamanic practices, of course, giving up physical abilities to gain magical ones, denying the flesh to unleash the spirit. Our prime example of such a green seer fish caught in the weir is Bloodraven, a.k.a. Brynden Rivers. That's right, he's literally a man of the rivers who is physically entangled in a wooden weir. His dual Targaryen Blackwood heritage implies him as a tree person and a dragon person, and he is indeed a dragon person merging with a tree, and that takes care of the dragon entering the weirwood net symbolism from one side, but then his name Rivers adds the connotation of water and thus makes Lord Brynden a sea dragon or a fish man caught in the weir, which again re-emphasizes the symbolism of the Greenseers. Don't forget that our young Lord Brandon Stark is also half-tully, and therefore a bit of a wolf fish. Just don't call him a merman. Merman! Although because of his broken legs, he does crawl around on land, something like a mermaid or a merman would have to. Because mermaids obviously can't walk on their tails, that would be ridiculous. As I mentioned in The Grey King and the Sea Dragon, a great likeness is drawn between Bloodraven and the Grey King when we see the white weirwood roots that coil around and through Bloodraven's body, described as white wooden serpents, which is highly evocative of the sea dragon that turned out to be a white weirwood boat. Grey King sat in a throne of sea dragon weirwood, and Bloodraven sits in a throne of white serpent weirwood. Now think about the weirwood boat thing as a metaphor for sailing the cosmic ocean via the power of the weirwood. Aha, now you're beginning to see how this works. The weirwoods are like a ship or a vehicle for astral projection, for sailing the green sea, a.k.a. the cosmic ocean. That's why a grey king sits in a weirwood throne inside the overturned hull of a weirwood boat. It's a double metaphor. The grey king, in other words, didn't acquire fire from a sea monster or an actual burning tree. He found it inside the green sea of the weirwood net. He is the drowned godman who died to immerse himself in the green sea and then become a hero reborn in the sea who brought the fire of the gods out of that sea for man to possess. Nice guy, huh? This lines up with what I've been speculating about Nissa Nissa being the one to open the weirwoods for humans to become green seers, and about Azor High then becoming the first such. We're going to see a lot of evidence for these ideas today. The idea of a sea dragon possessing living fire, but then turning out to be a boat, has led us to some really terrific burning boat imagery. Consider the Tully funeral rites, which they imagined to send their dead down to the watery halls, where the Tullys held eternal court, with schools of fish their last attendants. Before they are submerged in the river, however, they are set on fire. Fiery death transformation, and then drowning. Then its destination, watery halls, which are really a symbol of the weirwood net. So in terms of symbolism, the dead Tully is undergoing fire transformation while using a ship to sail to the afterlife. And in particular, he's using a burning ship to enter the green sea of the weirwood net. 
He's possessing the sea dragon's fire. We saw a similar burning boat funeral with Dantos in Signs and Portals 2, if you've listened to that one already. The sequence there is very important. Dantos offered up his moon maiden, Sansa, for which Peter had promised him 30,000 dragons in return, creating the thousands of dragons coming from the sacrifice of the moon maiden symbolism. But instead, Peter gave Dantos actual death and symbolic fire transformation death via setting the little boat that Dantos is in on fire. Presumably, Dantos and the boat eventually sink and then symbolically go down to the watery halls, a la a Tully funeral. This scene depicts a foolish Azor High meddling with forces he doesn't understand by offering Nissa Nissa to the gods, with the result being that Azor High himself dies and enters the Weirwood Net. Dantos is symbolically using the burning boat as a vehicle to enter the sea, just like we saw with the Tully funeral rites. And, of course, just like Grey King, using his Weirwood boat to gain access to the green sea of the Weirwoods, the Fire of Naga. There was an interesting and important line in the Dantos scene where Peter suggests that Dantos, who is a raging alcoholic, would simply have drunk up those 30,000 dragons, meaning he would have spent the money on alcohol. This implies the fire dragons that come from the moon as an intoxicating and possibly deadly substance, which seems like obvious food and drink of the gods imagery, as that's basically the same thing as the fire of the gods in another form. Consider this line from Jojen in A Dance with Dragons. It is given to a few to drink from that green fountain while still in mortal flesh, to hear the whisperings of the leaves, and to see as the trees see, said Jojen. That's a little bit roundabout, as a fountain is not a sea, but of course, that really doesn't matter. The green sea symbolism works with green lakes, rivers, ponds, or even glasses of green wine or flasks of wildfire. Honestly, any body of water can be used. The description of the green seer gift as a green liquid that one can drink is what I find compelling here, as it again puts the fire of the gods in liquid form, just like the Danto scene. But this time it's a green liquid that is specifically used as a metaphor for green seeing by Jojen. This is George basically waving the metaphor in front of our faces here. He's showing us that green liquids can symbolize green seeing, then throws in the line about being able to see as the trees see. The idea of drinking a green drink, which represents the fire of the gods and might kill you, has to put us in mind of Arion Brightflame, the Targaryen prince who died drinking wildfire, imagining it would turn him into a real dragon. Joke's on you, buddy. The line was, One night in his cups, he'd drink a jar of wildfire after telling his friends it would transform him into a dragon. But the gods were kind, and it transformed him into a corpse. This compares very well to the idea of Dantos drinking up the thousands of dragons that he was promised for surrendering up the Moon Maiden, and then being turned into a burning corpse. It also compares very well to a green seer like Blood Raven turning into a wooden corpse as he drinks from the green fountain and possesses the fire of the gods. Dantos's second life as a green seer is implied by his fiery death in a sea dragon boat, while Arion drank from the green fountain in order to have a second life as a dragon with the dragons standing in for the weirwood trees. Dragons and weirwoods both eat people and are associated with fire and blood, after all. And there's some great dragon tree mythology that we'll get into one day as well, I promise. Bleeding trees named after dragons. They exist. 
Way back in Bloodstone Compendium episode number five, Tyrion Targaryen, you may recall a famous line from the Tyrion chapter of A Dance with Dragons that I used to make the case for Tyrion as a secret Targaryen because it fits in here very well. If I drink enough fire wine, he told himself, perhaps I'll dream of dragons. Which indeed he does. That night he dreams of meeting Daenerys and being fed to her dragons, and the next night, after a line about matching Illyrio cup for cup of wine, he dreams of that weird battle scene with Barristan the Bold on Bittersteel, where dragons are wheeling across the sky above. There's also the very first line of Tyrion's first chapter in A Dance with the Dragons, which many of you might be able to quote from memory. He drank his way across the narrow sea. Yes, that one really stands out. Drinking the fire of the gods is what allows you to use the green sea as a portal, something that can take you from one place to another. And that's an idea we'll be following up on in the Signs and Portals series. Ravenous Reader would like to chime in here with a find that relates. Viserys is another foolish dragon figure like Dantos, who sold his moon maiden like Dantos, and in return was famously crowned with molten gold. That's definitely a depiction of someone obtaining the liquid fire of the gods and dying at the same time. And when Danny sees a vision of Viserys later in A Dance with Dragons, it says that... Viserys began to laugh until his jaw fell away from his face, smoking, and blood and molten gold ran from his mouth. It's like George is showing us that Viserys tried to drink the liquid fire of the gods, the molten gold, but simply couldn't handle it. His jaw falls off to signify his inability, or you might even say unworthiness. And back in A Game of Thrones, during Danny's Wake the Dragon dream, she also saw a nightmare vision of Viserys, and it says that the molten gold trickled down his face like wax, burning deep channels in his flesh, which may be meant to evoke the face carving of a weirwood tree. And that same passage also has his eyes bursting open, again suggesting the bloody eyes of a weirwood tree. And all of this, the death of Viserys, Danny's two visions of Viserys, five books apart, takes place in the green Dothraki Sea. Ah, yes, it's the green sea again. We're going to talk more about that in the next episode, where we're Compendium 7, because Danny's green sea stuff is simply so big it needs its own episode. I mean, think about it. Danny was reborn as Azor High in the green Dothraki Sea. Now, perhaps more important than Azor High drinking the fire of the gods is the idea of his being drowned or immersed in a sea or river, with bonus points if that water is green. As we discussed in the last episode, Rhaegar's body falling into the green banks of the trident depicts a sea dragon being slain and landing in the water, and now you can see how true that really is. He fell into the green banks of a river named for the sea god's symbol of power, the trident. Rhaegar is therefore definitely an Azor high figure dying and going into the green sea of the Weirwood Net symbolically. And then later on the green Dothraki Sea, Rhaegar is symbolically reborn as Rhaegal the Green Dragon. That's an awful lot of synergy, just the kind we are looking for. Then there's Beric Dondarrion, the corpse lord with the flaming sword who sits in a Weirwood throne. He has watery Weirwood Net symbolism in his death, and non-watery weirwood net symbolism in his resurrection. His first death took place at the Mummer's Ford, with his body falling into the water much like Rhaegar's did. He dies in the river, but is resurrected and reborn in a grove of ash, which of course is code for inside the weirwood net. Then he inhabits a dark, weirwood root-infested cave like blood ravens just to sort of put a bow on it. 
To say it simply, Beric died in the water and was reborn as a symbol of a green seer dragon. Don't forget magnificent King Renly with his deep forest green slash deep pond green armor because he drowned in his own blood. He had time to make a small thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. Your gr- no, cried Brienne the Blue when she saw that evil flow, sounding as scared as any little girl. The king stumbled into her arms, a sheet of blood creeping down the front of his armor, a dark red tide that drowned his green and gold. More candles guttered out. Renly tried to speak, but he was choking on his own blood. His legs collapsed, and only Brienne's strength held him up. She threw back her head and screamed, wordless in her anguish. Glorious and tragic King Renly is a stagman, solar king, and also a green man. And look, he's dying and drowning at the same time. His legs collapse, folding like a stag even. Think of Cold Hands' elk letting Sam and Gilly climb on with the line, the creature sank to his knees to let them mount. When Renly is resurrected, air quotes resurrected, as Garland Tyrell, wearing Renly's armor at the Battle of the Blackwater, he appears as a fiery stagman leading a host of demons, whom we can now see as being implied as coming out of the Weirwood Net. That's an interesting idea. Demons coming out of the Weirwood Net. We'll have to follow up on that. Speaking of drowning on your own blood, there is a great quote foreshadowing the, quote, drowning death of Micken, the Winterfell smith, which is just overripe with green sea wordplay. And it's interwoven with actual green sight as a bonus. This is one that Colin VW, a.k.a. Colin Longstrider, the eighth spoke of the wandering wheel, found in A Clash of Kings. The past, the future, the truth, they left him more muddled than ever. When he was alone, Bran tried to open his third eye, but he didn't know how. No matter how he wrinkled his forehead and poked at it, he couldn't see any different than he'd done before. In the days that followed, he tried to warn the others about what Jojen had seen, but it didn't go as he wanted. Micken thought it was funny. The sea, is it? Happens I always wanted to see the sea. Never got where I could go to it, though. So now it's coming to me, is it? The gods are good to take such trouble for a poor smith. Jojen actually sees Micken and a couple of other Winterfell residents drowning in his dream, but then that turns out to be a metaphor for the invasion of Theon's dripping wet ironborn. But for Micken, who has always wanted to see the sea, it's a bit more literal when he offers stubborn defiance to, air quotes, Theon the Conqueror. The bald man drove the point of the spear into the back of Micken's neck. Steel slid through flesh and came out of his throat in a welter of blood. A woman screamed, and Mira wrapped her arms around Rickon. It's blood he drowned on, Bran thought numbly. His own blood. Such a violent metaphor, and a tragic, courageous death for Micken. But it does work. He's drowning on blood and seeing the sea, just as Jojen of the Moss Green Eyes had foreseen that Micken would. It's not so much about Micken being Azor High as it is a simple demonstration that someone sacrificed with a red smile-type throat wound can be seen as drowning in the sea, which is again simply a confirmation of the weirwood stigmata theory, which already suggested that red smiles, bloody smiles, and throat wounds are part of the symbolism that indicates someone going into the weirwood net. 
Tyrion, another Azor High Reborn figure whom we just mentioned, was also knocked unconscious and nearly died during that battle in A Game of Thrones, which means death transformation. That battle was the one where he commanded a host of mountain clansmen from the Mountains of the Moon. What was that called? I think it was uh, the Battle on the Green Fork. Yes, that's it. Tyrion says to Sansa afterward that one of your Northmen hit me with a morning star during the Battle on the Green Fork. I escaped him by falling off my horse. With falling off your horse, of course, being a great metaphor for being knocked out of the heavens. And his name is Mr. Ed. At that same battle, Tyrion ended up showered in blood and viscera when he stood up suddenly beneath his enemy's horse and eviscerated it with his spiked helm. Gross, I know. But the point is, the combination of Tyrion's Azor High Reborn symbolism and drowning in blood symbolism paired with the battle being on the Green Fork. Tyrion has another death transformation scene that actually combines the notion of drinking the Green Sea and being immersed in it, even more so than Tyrion drinking his way across the narrow sea. That would be his drowning in the Rhoyne River, of course. When he goes into the river, it says that the stone man went over backwards, grabbing hold of Tyrion as he fell. They hit the river with a towering splash, and Mother Rhoyne swallowed up the two of them. That's the river swallowing Tyrion, and then we see that it actually works the other way around as well, when Tyrion asks Halden Halfmaester, when he might be able to stop worrying about contracting grayscale, and Halden responds, Truly, said the half-maester, never. You swallowed half the river. You may be going gray even now, turning to stone from inside out, starting with your heart and lungs. There is a ton more to discuss here at the Bridge of Dream, which we'll come back for another time, especially since a fishing weir can also be a bridge, meaning that a bridge of dream is also a weir of dream. It's straddling the river. It's made of pale stone, like a petrified weirwood. And it collects people who slowly turn into statues. Recalling that Bran describes Bloodraven as some ghastly statue made of twisted wood, old bone, and rotted wool, we can see that the weirwoods pluck people from the river and turn them into statues, very like the Bridge of Dream does. You'll also recall that Tyrion's crew only gets trapped in a fight with the stone men after time and space sort of short-circuit and get all wonky and put Tyrion's company somehow passing under the same bridge twice. John Connington says that rivers only flow one way, but of course we know that the Weirwoods stand outside the River of Time and have access to the entire thing at once. And we could say the same thing about the Bridge of Dream. It also stands outside the River of Time in some sense. So with all that Bridge of Dream, River of Time set up, Tyrion is then swallowed by the river and swallows the river in turn. And Halden Halfmaester specifically ascribes a transformative power to the waters themselves when he says that swallowing the river could mean his insides are turning gray from the inside out. Turning gray, huh? The Azor High Reborn figure drowns in the green sea beneath the Bridge of Dream, is reborn, and might now be turning into a gray statue? Well, you can see how the Grey King mythology and Azor High mythology dovetails so nicely. The Grey King obtains the living fire of the sea dragon and the fire of the burning tree and then becomes a grey-skinned man sitting on a weirwood throne and supposedly living for a thousand years, which is kind of like turning into a statue. To say it another way, Azor High was reborn in the sea, as Stannis says, but not like Stannis thinks, because he was really reborn in the green sea of the weirwood net. He came out as the Grey King, possessing the fire of the gods, who seems to be a living corpse sitting on a weirwood throne. 
a green zombie is what I would call him. This is probably the same story as the last hero, dying and being resurrected through the Weirwood Net, receiving the help of the children of the forest, and then becoming a green zombie hero leading the Night's Watch with his sword of dragon steel. That's a pretty nice alignment, isn't it? Green zombies, magic swords, resurrection through the Weirwood Net, a hero that brings back the dawn. Well, we'll talk more about this when we shift over to Nissa Nissa figures who go swimming in the green sea in the back half of this episode. Now, we can't talk about the Grey King and being reborn in the sea without mentioning the damp hair, right? I mean, he even has a chapter called The Drowned Man. Aaron Greyjoy, a.k.a. the damp hair, is very much like Tyrion in that he both drinks and drowns. Here's the relevant quote from A Feast for Crows. At six and ten, he called himself a man, but in truth he had been a sack of wine with legs. He would sing, he would dance but not the finger dance. Never again. He would jape and jabber and make mock. He played the pipes. He juggled. He rode horses and could drink more than all the winches and botleys and half the harlaws too. The drowned god gives every man a gift, even him. No man could piss longer or farther than Aaron Greyjoy, as he proved at every feast. Once he bet his new longship against a herd of goats that he could quench a hearthfire with no more than his cock. Aaron feasted on goat for a year and named the longship Golden Storm, though Balon threatened to hang him from her mast when he heard what sort of ram his brother proposed to mount upon her prow. And then a moment later, thinking of his younger, foolish self, Aaron thinks, That man is dead. Aaron had drowned, had been reborn from the sea, the god's own prophet. So he drinks more than anyone, he drowns, and then he's reborn from the sea. The idea of his being hung from the mast is also a call out to Odin's hanging on a tree, especially here in the context of Aaron gaining the ability to hear the drowned god and speak with his voice. Check out this quote from A Clash of Kings. And what of you, uncle? The asked. You were no priest when I was taken from Pike. I remember how you would sing the old reaving songs, standing on the table with a horn of ale in hand. Young I was, and vain, Aaron Greyjoy said, but the sea washed my follies and my vanities away. That man drowned, nephew, his lungs filled with sea water, and the fish ate the scales off his eyes. When I rose again, I saw clearly. When he rose from the sea... He could see. I think that pretty neatly encompasses today's idea. There's even a line I didn't quote about Aaron winning a bet by being able to quench a hearth fire with his uh, stream. This evokes the pyromancer's piss description of wildfire and relates his legendary drinking to wildfire and thus drinking the fire of the gods. Heck, even his name Aaron sounds like Arion, the man who drank wildfire and killed himself. Finally, notice Theon's sort of frozen mental image of young Aaron, singing old reading songs with a horn of ale in his hand. Odin always is depicted as drinking the meat of poetry from a horn, and I think that's what's being evoked here. And of course, singing songs of the sea simply reminds us that the natural residents of the Green Sea, the children of the forest, are really called those who sing the song of Earth. Now look, we're talking about drowning and being reborn and the sea and how everything under the sea is a metaphor and I know you want to hear about Patchface. Well look, 
Patchface needs his own episode. That's all I can say. But we've already taken a quick look at him in the Sacred Order of the Green Zombies series, and we do remember that he is a stag man with red and green patchwork tattoos on his face who mysteriously drowned at sea and washed on shore three days later to be reborn from the sea. He's lost most of his wits, but can now hear some sort of voice of prophecy from under the sea, which is, of course, a classic shamanic motif. The idea that gaining third sight can render you half mad. And one of the connotations of Odin's name is madness. Patchface has acquired the, quote, terrible knowledge, as indicated by his knowing lament of, I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Before Patches drowned, he was a child who was... Nimble as a monkey, and witty as a dozen courtiers. He juggles and riddles and does magic, and can sing prettily in four tongues. A magic-wielding child man, who can sing in many languages. Red and green, with antlers, reborn in the sea. Now all this stuff makes a bit more sense. It's basically just a very weird take on the same story of Azor High being a demonic stag man who was reborn in the green sea of the Weirwood Net. Another time, and I'm thinking about doing this for a sort of mythical astronomy roundtable livestream in a couple weeks, actually, we're going to go through all of Patchface's sayings and try to decode them one by one. But for now, I just want to quote one of them to tide you over. This is Sir Malagorn, one of Queen Selyse's knights, talking to John in A Dance with Dragons. Who will lead the ranging? Are you offering yourself, sir? Do I look so foolish? Patchface jumped up. I will lead it. His bells rang merrily. We will march into the sea and out again. You can see how loaded all the Patchface quotes are going to be, right? There's even more to this one, but just the one line we quoted here says a ton. A reborn stagman hero leading the Night's Watch into the sea and out again? This is a tremendous synthesis of green zombie symbolism, stagman symbolism, last hero symbolism, Grey King mythology, Azor High mythology, and sheer madness. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to our one deep dive example of an Azor High figure drowning amidst fire and being resurrected from the sea. The Jade Demon. This section is brought to you by the Sacred Order of the Black Hand. Servorian, the warg of the morning, wielder of the dual blades of sunrise, Poseidon of the dragonglass sea, the orcish priest, Lady Shar, wielder of the sacred shard, Avatar, witch of the house of the unsleeping, Ridiculous Ed Tolle, the firebeard of the dragonglass forge, whose eyes are like pale morning mist, and Sir Morris Mayberry the upright, climber of Jacob's ladder, whose words are, I drink and tweet thee. That's right, it's Davos at the Blackwater time. We won't deal with the entire battle, which is immense, but we'll cover Davos's part in it. The basic elements at play are readily apparent. Tons of wildfire, including the infamous swirling demon of green flame. Burning ships. Not one, but two weirs. Tyrion's chain boom and the bridge of ships that temporarily forms. And finally, Davos's drowning and resuscitation on the spears of the Merlin King. Some of the ship ramming is important too, I suppose. All right, let's set sail. Davos is a Clash of Kings chapter about the Battle of the Blackwater starts off with vivid imagery. Davos's ship, Black Betha, rides the flood tide of the choppy Blackwater Bay. That's interesting that Davos sails a ship named after Black Betha Blackwood, a woman whose house is strongly tied to weirwoods and greensears, 
but who married a dragon. Aegon V, a.k.a. Aegon the Unlikely, a.k.a. Egg from Duncan Egg. That makes Davos's ship Black Betha a ship associated with both weirwoods and dragons, and specifically to weirwood goddesses giving birth to dragon offspring. That's a deeply layered sea dragon metaphor, recalling the Grey King in his weirwood throne and weirwood boat. Spoiler alert, Black Betha does indeed catch on fire to become a proper burning sea dragon boat symbol. This would put Davos as our Azor High Greenseer figure, who is set to undergo death transformation and enter the Green Sea, as he's the captain of the fiery weirwood sea dragon boat. Davos wears an old green cloak for what it's worth, and I think it's worth something. If you're going to sail the Green Sea, you might as well wear a green cape. Considering that this entire fleet belongs to Stannis, all of the ships are really sea dragon boats, and Stannis is a little bit Targaryen, and of course, Stannis is an Azor Ahai figure. But hey, don't take my word for it. This is the second paragraph of the chapter. Across the sea, war horns boomed. Deep throaty moans like the calls of monstrous serpents repeated ship to ship. Well then, the boats are sea serpents with deep throaty warhorn calls. They speak the language of Leviathan, apparently. That's clear enough. And again, most of these boats are going to catch on fire. And although I hate to step away from the Davos chapter, I do really have to compare this line to the sighting of the old man of the river on the Rhoyne in Tyrion's chapter. It was another turtle, a horned turtle of enormous size, its dark green shell molted with brown and overgrown with water moss and crusty black river mollusk. It raised its head and bellowed, a deep-throated thrumming roar, louder than any war horn that Tyrion had ever heard. It's a dark green, horned sea monster with a deep-throated warhorn call, very like Davos and Stannis' fleet of sea dragon boats. I thought I'd point it out, since this is the same river Tyrion swallowed and was swallowed by that we were just talking about. You may also recall that it was the wooden turtle that the wildlings used to try to ram the gate at Castle Black that John compared to a flipped-over boat hull that drew a link between ships, turtles, and sea monsters. Returning to the battle. The war horn sounded again, commands drifting back from the fury. Davos felt a tingle in his missing fingertips. Out oars, he shouted. Form line. A hundred blades dipped down into the water as the oarsmaster's drum began to boom. The sound was like the beating of a great slow heart, and the oars moved at every stroke. A hundred men pulling as one. Wooden wings had sprouted from the wraith, and Lady Marya as well. The three galleys kept pace, their blades churning in the water. Okay, so now our fleet of sea dragon boats has sprouted wooden wings. What a great metaphor for flying through the weirwood trees, as Bran does, right? It's the weirwood boat as a ship for astral projection motif again, and it's a good one. Twice the oars are called blades, which shows us our sea dragon thrusting blades into the water. I mean, you can't forget the sea dragon as falling meteor sword part of the myth, right? We also have to notice that our sea dragon boats have a heartbeat, and that it's made up of a hive mind of sorts, with hundreds of men pulling as one. Oh, and all of this is triggered by blowing horns, the ones which sound like sea serpent calls. There's a matching line a bit further on. The sea was full of sound, shouts and calls, war horns and drums and the trill of pipes, the slap of wood on water, as thousands of oars rose and fell. 
As you can see, the sea is full of sound. Well, it's full of singers at the very least, and maybe some dudes with horns. Next up, we get an important line of ominous foreshadowing about the ship named Swordfish lagging as ever, and about Davos having grave doubts about her captain. Swordfish is the ship that first rams the bait ship full of wildfire and looses the jade demon. Of course, swordfish. It's like the sea dragon being a sword, or like the castle pike sitting on the point of the sword of land that plunged into the sea. And oh, by the way, the word pike can refer to both a spear or a fish, very like swordfish. Next, we get a list of ships in Stannis' sea dragon fleet, a few of which are worth mentioning. Most of them, actually. Ships such as Stag of the Sea. That's our man, Azor High, the Horned Lord of the Green Sea. And there's another ship called Horned Honor. Brightfish gives us fishboat imagery combined with an allusion to light bringing, or maybe fire or explosions or something like that. And then we have the unfortunately named Sea Demon, which sounds like foreshadowing of the unleashing of the Jade Demon on the river. And of course, both of these demons of the Green Sea ultimately refer back to Azor High. Swift Sword is a bit like Swordfish, and then it gives us the falling meteor sword aspect of the sea dragon boat metaphor. And there's also a Trident Three, which kind of sounds like it could be the name for a ship from Starfleet, as in Star Trek. But it's also a ship that is a weapon, and evokes the Trident River, and the Trident as a symbol of the sea god's power. And there's also a ship named Scepter as well. Princess Rainies and Red Raven seem evocative of Fire Moon Death and Bleeding Stars as ravens, and of course a Red Raven reminds us of Blood Raven, and thus the Sea Dragon Boat is further tied to Green Seer Dragons. Finally, Salador San's Valerian is simply yet another dragon boat in Stannis' fleet. These ships all have one thing in common, it turns out, and it's more ominous foreshadowing, given the events of the battle. From every stern streamed the fiery heart of the Lord of Light, red and yellow and orange. Burning sea dragon boats, and the metaphor is about to come to life. As they approach the river mouth, we read that the river that had seemed so narrow from a distance now stretched as wide as a sea, which makes the river into a sea, just to make sure we get the metaphor. As we know, the river is about to become a sea of green fire. Davos tastes a trap, it's a trap, and notices the chain boom on the way in, giving us the beginning of the weir-as-trap metaphor that applies to the chain. Later we see that the riverfront was a blackened desolation, burned by the Lannisters, and contains the hulks of sunken ships, recalling the scene at Lordsport where Theon compares sunken ships to the bones of dead leviathans. The chain itself has excellent symbolism, as Davos sees it snaking out of a hole no bigger than a man's head, and disappearing under the water. It's pretty fun to imagine a Cthulhu-like Naga man with a black hole for a head and a snake coming out of it, especially since the chain catches on fire. The hole referenced here would be the black hole dark star that forms when the moon explodes in front of the sun, and it is indeed from the black hole that the black meteor snakes come bearing fire. Then they disappear under the water like a drowning sea dragon meteor. The arrows also hiss like snakes all throughout the battle, and are frequently fire arrows, so this fiery snake as meteor symbolism, we can really say that it abounds throughout the battle. The falling arrows are also called a rain of shafts at one point. Then we get an even better meteor metaphor. Ashore the arms of the great trebuchets rose, one, two, 
three, and a hundred stones climbed high into the yellow sky. Each one was as large as a man's head. When they fell, they sent up great gouts of water, smashed through oak planking, and turned living men into bone and pulp and gristle. Decapitated stone heads make us think of the moon as the face of a man with an invisible body, especially falling out of the sky to strike the sea dragon ships. They're also turning men into bone and pulp and gristle, which is another way of saying blood and bone, and thus might be a depiction of sea dragon men entering the weirwoods by turning into images of them, pulpy, bloody tree people struck with the meteor fire of the gods. I mean, that's what it means when someone burns on a sea dragon boat or drowns in the water anyway. Sea dragon men entering the net. So, it fits pretty well. A moment later, one of the boulders that strikes a ship is as big as an ox, giving us a dash of lunar bull symbolism. As we watch the battle, we see that Davos's Black Betha rams her first target successfully, but then Davos catches his first sight of the green hell that awaits. A flash of green caught his eye. Ahead, and off to port, and a nest of writhing emerald serpents rose burning and hissing from the stern of Queen Alisane. An instant later, Davos heard the dread cry of, Wildfire! He grimaced. Burning pitch was one thing. Wildfire was quite another. Evil stuff, and well-nigh unquenchable. Smother it under a cloak, and the cloak took fire. Slap at a fleck of it with your palm, and your hand was aflame. Piss on wildfire, and your cock burns off, old seamen like to say. Still, Sir Emery had warned them to expect a taste of the alchemist vile substance. Oh, George, you randy bastard. The seamen have a saying about pissing on wildfire and your cock burning off. The seamen? Very funny. But of course we know the wildfire is called the pyromancer's piss, and unfortunately Davos and the sea dragons are about to get, quote, a taste of the alchemist's vile substance. Again, send your complaints to George. He's the one that set up the joke, not me. In any case, it is more drinking wildfire slash drinking from the green fountain, please don't at me, line of symbolism that we just discussed like mature adults. It really does line up with Arion, Bright Flame, and all the rest. And then begins the fire transformations. Men wreathed in green flame leapt into the water, shrieking like nothing human. Aha! More men robed in fire. And they're even wreathed, giving them King of Winter wreath symbolism that we've seen on other burning men. And then they leap into the water, into the river which is like a burning sea. They are also losing their humanity here, shrieking like nothing human. Then, through black smoke and swirling green fire, Davos sees the mass of rotten hulks that hide the big payload of wildfire. Davos calls them driftwood, which is fairly awesome. From this driftwood will be born the Jade Demon, making the demon itself yet another manifestation of Azorahai the fiery sorcerer waking from burning wood of symbolic import. Black Betha ends up locking horns, if you will, with an enemy ship called White Heart, H-A-R-T, Heart, which Davos's crew then successfully board and capture. This is a stag and tree yin-yang of sorts, a ship named for a white stag and one named for a black wood. One thinks of the doors of the House of Black and White, perhaps. In any case, we then get this absolutely bonkers line, which seems like an amazing reference to the god's eye as the eclipse alignment, as Black Betha and White Heart are locked together. 
For those few instants, Black Betha and White Heart were the calm eye in the midst of the storm. It seems to me that the White Heart would be the symbol of the solar king here, the bright stagman figure, and it is bordered by Black Betha, who seems to be representing the fire moon. And therefore, in terms of astronomy, I believe what we're seeing here is the sun being darkened by the moon that wandered too close to it, the eclipse alignment. That's exactly what the god's eye represents, according to me, and this is indeed the moment of calm right before the big explosion, mimicking the idea of the comet striking during the eclipse alignment. To set up that big explosion, we get a very long paragraph about the raging green inferno that the river has become, with various ships burning and tangling with one another. It's now very close to the full hellscape that we remember from this battle, and then comes the fateful moment. Captain Sir, Mathos touched his shoulder. It was Swordfish, her two banks of oars lifting and falling. She had never brought down her sails, and some burning pitch had caught in her rigging. The flame spread as Davos watched, creeping out over ropes and sails until she trailed ahead of yellow flame. Her ungainly iron ram, fashioned after the likeness of the fish from which she took her name, parted the surface of the river before her. Directly ahead, drifting toward her and swinging around to present a tempting plump target, was one of the Lannister hulks, floating low in the water. Slow green blood was leaking out between her boards. When he saw that, Davos Seaworth's heart stopped beating. A sea dragon that's also a sword, and it's trailing a head of flame like a comet. And now it's set to impregnate the plump, green-blooded Lannister ship. Davos Ahai's heart stops, symbolizing the beginning of his death transformation that coincides with the moon explosion. By the way, do you think George is making some incredible Hulk references here with all these Hulks full of the Jade Demon and one of which turns into a giant green monster? I mean, I certainly do. Picking up right where we left off. With a grinding, splintering, tearing crash, Swordfish split the rotted Hulk asunder. She burst like an overripe fruit. But no fruit had ever screamed that shattering wooden scream. From inside her, Davos saw green gushing from a thousand broken jars, poison from the entrails of a dying beast, glistening, shining, spreading across the surface of the river. Backwater, he roared. Away! Get us off her! Backwater! Backwater! The grappling lines were cut. Davos felt the deck move under his feet as Black Betha pushed free of White Heart. Her oar slid down into the water. Given the river of time metaphor, Davos saying backwater is almost like saying do over, do over, I want a do over, which is kind of funny as it suggests Azora High stabbing Nissa Nissa and then looking at the moon breaking and going, oh, wait a minute. Do over, do over, back up. In any case, the God's Eye union of the White Heart and the Black Betha is breaking up, right in sync with the swordfish colliding with the rotted hulk, there's that word again, and evoking the shattering wooden scream, an obvious call-out to the cry of anguish and ecstasy that came from Nissanissa, the weirwood goddess. That's all pretty great mythical astronomy. The overripe fruit description of the rotted hulk is the same language used to describe the older flasks of wildfire that the pyromancers show Tyrion a little earlier in A Clash of Kings, so this is simply Martin being consistent about implying wildfire as the fruit of the burning tree. Ah, yes, this is actually kind of important. The symbolic burning tree is the weirwood, so of course it would have burning green fruit. 
And once again, you can see that the idea of wildfire as green liquid fire and the green fountain representing the green seer fire of the gods overlaps quite nicely. Hat tip to Gretchen Ellis, a.k.a. Bale the Bard, for this wonderful observation. The entrails of a dying beast language strongly evokes the idea of Nissa Nissa as a slaughtered sea serpent, like Jormungand or Tiamat, or the sea dragon Naga herself, who was slaughtered so that the world could possess her fire. But only death can pay for life, as we know, and this dying beast is about to give birth to a monster. Then he heard a sharp wolf, as if someone had blown in his ear. Half a heartbeat later came the roar. The deck vanished beneath him. The black water smashed him across the face, filling his nose and mouth. He was choking, drowning, unsure which way was up. Davos wrestled the river in a blind panic until suddenly he broke the surface. He spat out water, sucked in air, grabbed hold of the nearest chunk of debris, and held on. Swordfish and the Hulk were gone. Blackened bodies were floating downstream beside him, and choking men clinging to bits of smoking wood. Fifty feet high, a swirling demon of green flame danced upon the river. It had a dozen hands, in each a whip, and whatever they touched burst into fire. He saw Black Betha burning, and White Heart, and loyal man to either side, piety, cat, courageous, scepter, red raven, harridan, faithful, fury. They had all gone up, Kingslander and God's grace as well. The demon was eating his own. Lord Valerian's shining pride of Driftmark was trying to turn, but the demon ran a lazy green finger across her silvery oars, and they flared up like so many tapers. For an instant, she seemed to be stroking the river with two banks of long, bright torches. This stuff basically leaps off the page. There are sea dragon boats carrying banks of torches, like the fire the drowned god brought from the sea as the burning brand. These sea dragon boats have been given the living fire of the jade demon, and now they are awesome burning boat sea dragon symbols. That will probably come as small consolation to the burning men leaping off of them, however. Sorry, guys. You died for symbolism. It was all worthwhile. Center stage is the swirling demon of green flame, dancing upon the river. Now, the horned moon is known to dance upon the river in a song of ice and fire, and that's basically who this fellow is. He's the son of the sun and moon, a horned devil version of Azor High, reborn as a green demon of fire. He bears the fiery whip symbol that we also saw in the hands of the fiery vision of Cal Drogo rising from the pyre of the alchemical wedding. And if you recall, it was that fiery lash that Drogo held that snaked down and cracked open the first dragon's egg. This fiery vision of Drogo, like the green demon here, also represents Azor Ahai, reborn from burning wood, as a being of fire. Here at the Blackwater scene, we have green fire and the burning water to denote the green seer symbolism, whereas Drogo had the rising column of ash and the smoky stallion, the firestorm, and the thunderous hatching of the green egg. But the message of Azor Ahai's fiery rebirth in the Green Sea remains the same in both scenes. The line about the demon eating its own seems to be another weirwood reference, since when a new green seer hooks up to a weirwood tree, he's essentially being slowly consumed by the tree, which harbors the spirits of his or her ancestors. We figured this out by thinking about the legend of the rat cook, who violated guest right and was therefore transformed into a huge white rat at the night fort, a white rat with red eyes, who was condemned to eat his own offspring. 
White with red eyes is basically giveaway weirwood symbolism, like Ghost, the direwolf. And the principle of a weirwood consuming the descendants of the people already in the tree is the same. Returning to the action, Davos has been thrown into the river and narrowly avoids drowning. Then he grabs onto some debris and is carried back towards the mouth of the river amidst all the fiery green chaos. We read that the black water itself seemed to boil in its bed, and burning spars and burning men and pieces of broken ships filled the air. Look, Mommy, the bad men are flying. That is, after all, the point of the burning ships as Weirwood's metaphor. They enable you to possess the fire of the gods and fly. It's not for everybody, though, clearly. Davos starts to think that, you know, maybe he'll survive, since he's a strong swimmer and Salador San's ships are right out in the bay proper. But then... And then the current turned him about again, and Davos saw what awaited him downstream. The chain. God save us. They've raised the chain. Where the river broadened out into Blackwater Bay, the boom stretched taut, a bare two or three feet above the water. Already a dozen galleys had crashed into it, and the current was pushing others against it. Almost all were aflame, and the rest soon would be. Davos could make out the striped holes of Saladrasan's ships beyond, but he knew he would never reach them. A wall of red, hot steel, blazing wood, and swirling green flame stretched before him. The mouth of Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell. And here we see the flaming weir spring to life. It's the mouth of hell, so it's both a weir stretching across the river and a portal to the fiery underworld. It's functioning exactly like a weir here, catching the sea dragon boats and straining them out of the river current. Notice the terrific War for the Dawn language here, too. The Flaming Weir had already captured a dozen burning sea dragon boats, representing our Night's Watch green zombie dozen, and then the current was pushing others against them. The river is pitting the others against a dozen burning sea dragon boats caught in the weir. It's pretty terrific, and it's good confirmation of the green zombies theory. As I mentioned, the chain boom, Mouth of Hell, is only one of two flaming weir symbols spanning the river, with the other one being the temporary Bridge of Ships, as it's called. That is all in Tyrion's chapter, and we'll cover that another time when we're focusing on the bridge function of the weirwoods more specifically, but just know that it's there. I've interpreted a burning ship as symbolizing a sea dragon and thus a weirwood, so seeing a bridge, or a weir if you will, made out of burning ships seems like great confirmation of that interpretation. I'll quickly note that on the other side of that bridge of ships from King's Landing is the Kingswood, the same wood set on fire by Aegon the Unworthy's wooden dragons with their wildfire. And of course, some of the Kingswood burns in this battle as well. I do, however, want to pull one line from Tyrion's Battle of the Blackwater chapter, as it directly associates the wildfire and the green demon with dragons. A dozen great fires raged under the city walls, where casks of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house. Their orange and scarlet pennons fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green, eerily beautiful, a terrible beauty, like dragonfire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire. This is interesting. The green fire is kind of like the fire of a dragon, but also like a burning house that burning people and burning ships live inside. 
That's because the green dragon and the burning ships both represent the Weirwood Net, the House of Green Fire, I guess you might call it. Our house. It's made of green fire. Anyway, there's a line from a Sansa chapter about this battle that needs to be mentioned here as well, as it has really great green sea wordplay. The southern sky was a swirl with glowing shifting colors, the reflections of great fires that burned below. Baleful green tides moved against the bellies of the clouds, and pools of orange light spread out across the heavens. The reds and yellows of common flame warred against the emeralds and jades of wildfire, each color flaring and then fading, birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later. Green dawns gave way to orange dusk in half a heartbeat. George is hitting us with an as-above-so-below thing pretty much straight out, and showing us baleful green tides and pools of orange light swirling up in the sky instead of down below where the water belongs. That's a symbol of the green sea, also representing the cosmic ocean in the sky. Of course, the idea of the heavens being on fire is fairly loaded with mythical astronomy and is somewhat suggestive of the idea of Lucifer warring against God in the heavens, or at least some sort of heavenly battle. The green fire and the red fire are fighting one another, birthing shadow warriors to fight one another like dawn and dusk. This is incredibly suggestive of the War for the Dawn, where we have black shadow knights watchmen battling against white shadow others in a war for the dawn during the night. Now, before we move on from Davos, we do need to mention a couple of bits from his A Storm of Swords chapter where he washes up on the spears of the Merling King. First off, being fished out of the sea on the prongs of the Merling King's spear is basically more fishing weir talk, with the god of the green sea himself plucking Davos out, akin to Sansa escaping King's Landing on the boat named the Merling King, and of course akin to the Weirwoods plucking fishmen green seers out of the River of Time. While Davos is sitting on the rock, recalling his escape from the green hellscape on the river, which he accomplished by swimming under the chain boom, we see references to swimming through green murk and green darkness, which emphasizes the water as the green sea. Davos thinks that in his dreams, the river was still aflame and demons danced upon the waters with fiery whips in their hands while men blackened and burned beneath the lash, just to sort of re-emphasize the symbolism of the battle. The important part is when Delirious Davos begins to hear the voice of God after praying desperately to the mother. Perhaps it was only wind blowing against the rock or the sound of the sea on the shore. But for an instant, Davos Seaworth heard her answer. You called the fire, she whispered, her voice as faint as the sound of waves in a seashell, sad and soft. You burned us. Burned us. Burned us. What is being implied here is that Davos is actually hearing the voice of the wooden statue of the mother that was burned on Dragonstone, one of the burning wooden sea dragon gods. She's reaching out from the grave to incriminate those who called down the fire. This is the voice of deadness Anissa, in other words, which Davos now hears as the whispering of the sea. Aha! Uh-huh. I've been suggesting that Nissa Nissa dies and becomes part of the Green Sea, so it makes sense to imagine the burning wooden version of Nissa Nissa now speaking with the voice of a sea goddess. 
saying that her voice is like the waves, brings to mind Aaron Dampier, beseeching the drowned god to speak to him in the rumble of the waves. Think about the drowned goddess idea. Davos also calls the Blackwater Bay a gray-green sea in this scene, which is notable. Also notable is the line about calling down the fire. This highlights the key role of the Azor High Grey King figure, calling down the fire of the gods and inflicting a terrible price on themselves and the world. When someone on the ship that comes to rescue Davos calls out to ask who he is, Davos thinks to himself, a smuggler who rose above himself, a fool who loved his king too much and forgot his gods. That's pretty standard Morningstar Lucifer language here, of rising too high with a nod to Azor High as a fool, such as with Dantos, Aegon Jingle Bell, Crescent wearing Patchface's helm, and a few others. All right, well, as you can see, Davos and the Battle of the Blackwater is simply packed with under-the-sea and sea dragon symbolism. It's basically impossible to break down without those ideas, which is why I've saved it for so long. At the heart of the matter is the unification of drowning and burning symbolism, neatly summed up by Davos later when he thinks of all those who died on the Blackwater. Drowned or burned with my sons and a thousand others, gone to make a king in hell. This would seem to be a nod to Azor High in that demon king role, such as we saw with the green demon on the river. It's also a nod to Azor High having something to do with the making of the others and about the others coming out of the Green Sea, which they do, I believe. Most of all, it shows how drowning in the Green Sea, or burning with green fire, or burning on a sea dragon boat, are all getting at the same idea, which is Azor High slash the Grey King entering the Weirwood Net. Davos is our Azor High figure drowning beneath the burning weir, and Tyrion, in parallel fashion, will be undergoing a face-carving and a death transformation on that fiery bridge of ships. So now this whole idea of Zora High being reborn in the sea is starting to make a bit more sense, right? Same for the Grey King coming to and from the sea, carrying fire out of the sea. Now this is more than just cryptic folklore. The Grey King wasn't only reborn in the Green Sea, however. He also took a wife from that sea, didn't he? A mermaid wife, I believe it was. But Azor Ahai took Nissa Nissa to wife, who was a weirwood goddess in our estimation, an elf woman who already had a link to the weirwoods. Of course, if the green sea is a metaphor for the weirwood net, we can see that the tales might match up after all. Taking a wife from the sea means taking a woman from the trees or from the forest. Describing her as a mermaid implies that this woman is a natural denizen of this sea, a sea creature just as you would think of the children of the forest as, well, the natural residents of the forest. It's right in their name. And that brings us to the familiar symbolism of drowning moon maidens, whom I've been comparing to mermaids for over two years now, a tip Crowfood's daughter of the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. You may even recall that Nysa was an Okeanid water nymph in Greek mythology, which invited us to consider Nissa Nissa as a mermaid way back when, but of course, everything about moon drownings and mermaids takes on a whole new meaning now. A moon goddess who drowned? No. More like a Nissanissa weirwood goddess who died and went into the green sea. We're going to have an absolute field day with Danny being reborn in the green Dothraki Sea next episode in the Weirwood Compendium. See what I did there? Field day, Dothraki Sea. All right. 
goddess of the sea. This section has been sponsored by the Priesthood of Starry Wisdom. Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters and keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. The Venus of Ostagic, starry lady of the Dragonstones. Lady Danelle Bulwer, the soaring bat of Blackjack Mountain. The Black Maester Azizel, lord of the feasible and keeper of the records, whose rod and ring and mask smell of coffee. Enovi, shadowbinder from the eastern mountains and lakes. And Sir Cosmo of House Dayspring, whose words are, we walk at dawn. Those of you who have done Signs and Portals 1 and 2 will know that we've already stumbled upon a pattern of Nissa Nissa figures undergoing a death transformation during a Lightbringer forging scene, followed by a journey to a watery underworld location, beginning with Sansa's flight from King's Landing in the aftermath of the Purple Wedding. Sansa doesn't die at the Purple Wedding, obviously, but rather disappears and transforms. You may recall the rumor about Sansa turning into a winged batwolf and flying away from the tower top which sort of embodies the symbolic death transformation in this case. Now, in actuality, Sansa fled through the Godswood, i.e. into the Weirdnet, and then down into a dragon underworld location beneath the Red Keep, where we had all those empty suits of Targaryen armor. Then she climbed down the cliff face and escaped into the foggy and ethereal Blackwater Bay aboard the Merlin King. This all makes more sense now. We already interpreted her flight through the godswood where she pulls a deep green cloak from the bowl of a tree as a representation of Nissa Nissa fleeing into the Weirwoods, but now we can see that her escape into the sea aboard the Merlin King really drives home the point by showing Nissa Nissa fleeing into the sea. Sansa, of course, was far from the only Nissa Nissa who flees into the sea after a symbolic death or symbolic lightbringer forging scene, and all such examples are going to add even more confirmation to the basic theory of the Weirwood Goddess series, which is that Nissa Nissa went into the Weirwoods. As we've discussed, Catelyn Stark was given the Weirwood stigmata at the Red Wedding, which signifies her as a Nissa Nissa figure being sacrificed and sent into the Weirwoods. And of course, right after this happens, Catelyn's body is thrown into the Green Fork in a savage mockery of House Tully's funeral customs as Tyrion thinks to himself. It's the same message as the stigmata. Nissa Nissa is dying and going into the green sea of the Weirwoodnet. The comparison to the Tully rites triples down on the message, since that is trademark burning boat sea dragon stuff, as we know. There's another great reference to drowning in the green sea connected to Catelyn that comes when she looks at Renly's armor. And you may be thinking of this one already, as it's just so tremendous. It's tremendous. Beside the entrance, the king's armor stood sentry, a suit of forest green plate, its fittings chased with gold, the helm crowned by a great rack of golden antlers. The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate, gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond, the face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? Yikes. This green sea stuff really hits you in the face, huh? Renly, the sacrificed green stag man who drowns in his own blood, has armor like a green pond, which is quite useful if you're a character in a fictional novel trying to foreshadow your own death and drowning, as Catelyn is. Catelyn sees herself as a drowned woman in a green pond, then her corpse is thrown into the green fork. The thing is, Renly's armor isn't just described as a green pond, it's also called forest green right in this same quote. Is it a green pond or a green forest? 
Then in the very chapter where he died in front of Cat and Brienne, Catelyn observes his armor again, and it's described as a deep wood. The king's armor was a deep green, the green of leaves in a summer wood, so dark it drank the candlelight. Gold highlights gleamed from inlay and fastenings, like distant fires in that wood, winking every time he moved. Renly's armor is like a deep green wood, or a deep green pond, but those are really referring to the same thing, the green sea of the weirwoods. The fires in that deep green wood are basically the same symbol as the fire in the sea motif of the sea dragon, and the drowned god carrying fire from the sea, and they're winking at us like stars stars that have fallen into the sea. Now think about when Lady Catelyn is resurrected as Lady Stoneheart. She's pulled out of the river and given back the fire of life by Beric, and then inhabits the famous Weirwood Cave in the Riverlands. You can see how the symbolism is working hard here, with Catelyn being pulled from the river, serving as a visual depiction of her coming back from death and becoming a Weirwood ghost slash undead Nissa figure. Also note the Cerberus guardian of the River Styx role, played by Nymeria the direwolf hellhound, who was the one to fish Cat's body from the river. It's almost like Nymeria was granting permission for Catelyn to return from the land of the dead. It's also a humorous call-out to Arya's imagined Tully Stark sigil as a wolf with a fish in its mouth, with Catelyn as the fish. Calling Catelyn a fish is obviously no accident, since House Tully has the trout as their sigil. Many have remarked that Catelyn's fishy associations, combined with her being thrown in the river, give her a grisly sort of mermaid symbolism, and that's absolutely correct. It sends the same message as the Grey King, or during God's Grief, having mermaid wives. Nissa Nissa was a native of the Green Sea, and went into the Weirwoodnet when she died. The Ghost of High Heart sums it up the best, actually. I dreamt of a roaring river, and a woman that was a fish... Dead she drifted, with red tears on her cheeks. But when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. The red tears of the weirwood stigmata are nicely juxtaposed with Catelyn as a fishwoman after the red wedding. Catelyn is our signature weirwood goddess, her and Melisandre, that is. And as we can see, Cat definitely qualifies as a symbolic mermaid or fish person. So, what about Melisandre, you ask, our other signature weirwood goddess? Well, the first time we meet her is in Cresson's A Clash of Kings prologue chapter, and it says... Maester, said Lady Melisandre, her voice deep, flavored with the music of the Jade Sea. You ought to take more care. As ever, she wore red head to heel, a long, loose gown of flowing silk, as bright as fire, with dagged sleeves and deep slashes in the bodice that showed glimpses of darker blood-red fabric beneath. Oh, so her voice is flavored with the music of the Jade Sea, huh? You mean the Green Sea? I think you do. The children of the forest are actually those who sing the song of Earth, of course, making them singers of the Green Sea. Melisandre's voice is like the music of the Green Sea, because Nissa Nissa was, in some sense, a singer, an elf woman. As a bonus, her flowing silk as bright as fire creates the image of garments made of liquid fire, and the blood-red fabric beneath suggests robes of flowing blood. So it sounds like someone has gotten some fire and blood in that jade-green sea here. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Moonblood got in there. 
Then, a few chapters later in A Clash of Kings, we get the burning of the Seven on Dragonstone, and Martin builds on the idea that Melisandre's voice has the music of the Jade Sea by saying that Melisandre sang in the tongue of a shy, her voice rising and falling like the tides of the sea. Again, this isn't just singer symbolism, but singer symbolism tied to the sea and coming from a weirwood goddess during a Lightbringer forging scene. Consider Davos rowing Melisandre into Storm's End now. There's another scene which takes on new meaning. Melisandre is a fire moon Nissa Nissa who has just taken the seed and life fires of Stannis and is now pregnant with a shadow baby and transits the pitch black shipbreaker bay to her final destination to give birth. This compares very well to Sansa fleeing the purple wedding through the godswood and into the Blackwater Bay aboard the Merlin King. The hollow knights of dragon armor beneath the red keep that seem to come to life when Sansa passes by would be the equivalent of Melisandre birthing the shadow baby in the cavern, as I mentioned last time. Now Mel transits the dark bay to Storm's End. So Mel transits the dark bay to Storm's End, specifically to that cavern below the castle. Recalling our examination of Storm's End during In a Grove of Ash, we saw that the white cliff face and the rising fist description of Storm's End make it a rising ash cloud symbol and a weirwood symbol. And of course, the castle was famous for its huge and ancient weirwood until Mel burned it, adding to the burning weirwood symbolism here at Storm's End. That fits with Melisandre entering through a watery cavern. The cavern evokes Bloodraven's Cavern since it's below a weirwood symbol, and the sea flowing into the cave is simply bringing in the green sea, green seer symbolism. The shadow baby itself represents the rebirth of Azor High as the Dark Solar King, as I've been saying since, like, Bloodstone Compendium number 2, and its birth in the watery cave is simply another depiction of Azor High being reborn in the sea. Note the sequence here. A pregnant weirwood goddess goes into the weirwood net, symbolically, and then gives birth to Azor High Reborn. It's quite suggestive. Ravenous Reader would also like me to point out here that there is indeed a river in Bloodraven's cave. The caves were timeless, vast, silent. They were home to more than threescore living singers and the bones of thousands dead and extended far below the hollow hill Men should not go wandering in this place, Leaf warned them. The river you hear is swift and black, and flows down and down to a sunless sea. And there are passages that go even deeper, bottomless pits and sudden shafts, forgotten ways that lead to the very center of the earth. Even my people have not explored them all, and we have lived here for a thousand thousand of your man years." Note the Timeless Caves reference. Shout out to Wiz the Smith and his indispensable Hollow Hills, The Caves Are Timeless essay, which draws its title from that line. This is another example of the weirwoods existing outside of time. Timeless Caves. The Sunless Sea is a reference to a famous poem, Kubla Khan, or A Vision in a Dream by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, for those of you who want to do a bit of further reading. For our next drowning moon goddess, Nissa Nissa figure, who is symbolically entering the weirwood net, we have Ygritte. That's right, come on down, Ygritte. In The Grey King and the Sea Dragon, we mentioned that when Jon is offered Winterfell in the Stark name by Stannis, the price is setting fire to the heart tree at Winterfell. While Jon is anguishing over this choice, he dreams of swimming with Ygritte in a hot pool beneath the heart tree. 
When the dreams took him, he found himself back home once more, splashing in the hot pools beneath a huge white werewood that had his father's face. Egret was with him, laughing at him, shedding her skin till she was naked as her name day, trying to kiss him, but he couldn't, not with his father watching. He was the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. I will not father a bastard, he told her. I will not, I will not. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she whispered, her skin dissolving in the hot water, the flesh beneath sloughing off her bones until only skull and skeleton remained, and the pool bubbled thick and red. Ygritte is, of course, a kissed-by-fire, red-headed, weirwood goddess figure, just like Cat or Melisandre, and here she is dissolving into the pool beneath the heart tree, which we can now see as a metaphor for merging with the weirwoods, and for the ego dissolution which is necessary to join a hive mind. By filling the pool with her blood, it's implied that the weirwood tree will drink her blood anyway, since that's how weirwoods drink blood, as we know from the brand vision. But the green sea, green seer wordplay makes the meaning of this scene crystal clear. She's melting into the pond. Ygritte sheds her skins, and then her real skin melts, which I take as a depiction of Nissa Nissa as a skin-changer woman dying and going into the tree. She's literally turning into blood and bone, the famous description of the coloring of the weirwoods, which is kind of like taking weirwood stigmata to a whole new level. Gotta admire the dedication there. Ygritte's boiling also reminds us very strongly of Danny's dreams of being immolated in dragonfire, with her flesh melting and sloughing off her bones in the same fashion. It's something that she calls out to during the alchemical wedding as well. Both Danny and Ygritte are dying Nissa Nissa figures, entering the sea of green fire, in a manner of speaking, and filling it with blood. They are losing their flesh, symbolic of their mortal life, to become only blood and bone, the look of a heart tree. I've often said that the idea of Nissa Nissa opening the door to the Weirwood Net for Azor High and all of mankind may go as far as Nissa Nissa essentially becoming the Weirwood Net as we know it by merging with the tree consciousness when she died. That's what's kind of implied here, as Ygritte's blood transforms this mini sea before the heart tree into a sea of moon blood. The sea is now Nissa Nissa, in other words. Sansa has a somewhat similar scene where she takes a hot bath and turns it bloody, which comes after that whole ridiculous bit where she gets her moon blood and tries to burn her entire mattress in the hearth fire, which you may recall from the Bloodstone Compendium 3, Waves of Night and Moon Blood. And the reason I mention that is because that's all Lightbringer forging, moon death, moon transformation stuff going on there. And of course, we do have a bloody bath right in the middle of it. John's dream of melting a grit in the pond is obviously a partial memory of the unforgettable John and Ygritte cave scene, where John discovers the Lord's kiss on pure instinct. boy, John. The key thing I want to point out is that Ygritte famously suggests to John that they can stay in the cave forever. Which, yeah, they probably should have done that. They were soon fumbling and bumping into each other as they tried to dress in the dark. Ygritte stumbled into the pool and screeched at the cold of the water. When John laughed, she pulled him in too. They wrestled and splashed in the dark, and then she was in his arms again, and it turned out they were not finished after all. Jon Snow, she told him when he spent his seed inside her. Don't move now, sweet. I like the feel of you in there. 
I do. Let's not go back to Stir and Jarl. Let's go down inside and join up with Gindel's children. I don't ever want to leave this cave, Jon Snow. Not ever. This scene has even more going on than you thought, huh? Once again, we have the cave and water symbolism appearing side by side, which suggests a green seer cave and the green sea metaphor. Ygritte, a weirwood goddess, wants to trap John here in the weirwood net and join up with children, an obvious allusion to the dead children of the forest green seers who inhabit the net. And once again, we see the suggestion of copulation and reproduction inside the weirwood net. The first time that John and Ygritte hook up also has amazing weirwood goddess symbolism. It was almost too much to believe when I found it recently. Tell me what you think. My vows, he'd thought, remembering the weirwood grove where he had said them, the nine great white trees in a circle, the carved red faces watching, listening. But her fingers were undoing his laces, and her tongue was in his mouth, and her hand slipped inside his small clothes and brought him out and he could not see the werewolves anymore, only her. She bit his neck, and he nuzzled hers, burying his nose in her thick red hair. Lucky, he thought. She is lucky. Fire kissed. Isn't that good? She whispered as she guided him inside her. Once again, the technique of flashback is being used to superimpose one symbol on top of another. Just like John and your grid on top of one another. Ba-boom, John recalls the Weirwood Grove of Nine circle just as they copulate, which sort of places them symbolically inside the Weirwoods as they copulate. And then, as he enters the Weirwood Goddess, he could not see the Weirwoods anymore, only her. But she is the Weirwood, and she's biting him on the neck like a vampire tree. This is Azor High going into the Weirwoods via some sort of magic ritual with Nissa Nissa. Here the sex serves as a metaphor for Azor High entering the tree, but also may imply some sort of baby sacrifice or magic child being involved, which is an idea we've discussed many times before. Now, we do have plenty more drowning moon goddesses to examine and re-examine. Many of them are icy moon maidens that deal with blue pools and icy ponds, and we'll tackle those another time when we're talking about Night's Queen. There are, however, two more major Nissa Nissa fire moon maiden characters remaining, who, between the two of them, have probably the most green sea moon-drowning symbolism of any of the moon goddess figures. And one of those, Asha Greyjoy, will be the in-depth section that we will close the episode with. While the other is, of course, Daenerys, whose green sea symbolism is so expansive that it needs its own entire episode to discuss. As to the Asha stuff we're about to get into, well, if you thought this green sea wordplay was clever and witty, you ain't seen nothing yet. An ocean of leaves. This final section is brought to you by the faithful support of the priesthood of starry wisdom. Black-eyed Lily, the dark phoenix. The orange man. Patchface of motley wisdom. Obscured by clouds, the mayor of Walrusville, guest of the Yupik and servant of Bodhi. Relore girl, mistress of the pointy end. Stella de Silvestri, also called Yellow Stella, mistress of Arcana. Grin of Long Lake, the smiling ranger and freezer of the White Knife, and Tom Cruise lurking in a chat, drinking a Diet Coke next to a picture of Aldous Huxley. One of the very best examples of a Nissa Nissa character who drowns and enters the Weirwood Net is Asha Greyjoy in her Wayward Bride chapter. 
That's right, it's the wayward bride again. I told you this was my favorite chapter. I led into the green sea metaphor with the green dragon and sea dragon ideas, simply because of the path that my essays have taken. But if I were starting from scratch and just writing something to introduce the green sea as a concept, I'd probably start with this wayward bride chapter. It's just that good. The climax of the fight gives us the familiar dichotomy of burning trees and moon maiden drownings as clear as day. Ashes backed up against a tree like a weirwood sacrifice, struck a lightning blow to the head, then catches a quick vision of a burning stag man in a golden wood before thinking of the drowned god's watery halls and losing consciousness. I don't need to pull all the quotes again since we've been to this chapter a few times, so I'll just highlight the key phrases of that last fight that she has before being knocked out. So Ash's wooden shield is turned to kindling as the Northman's axe peels off long, pale splinters, with the kindling suggesting burning wood, and the long, pale splinters, the long, pale, wooden, pointy things, if you will, perhaps suggesting Naga's fangs, which are wooden ribs. Asha is dancing right and left, and then her back came up hard against a tree, and she could dance no more. Then we read that her feet were tangled in some roots, trapping her, which is flagrant green seer trapped in the weir symbolism. And remember that Asha is a squid, meaning a sea creature. The blow to the head makes a scream of steel, giving us Nissa Nissa's widow's wail of agony and ecstasy, and then the world went red and black and red again. And pain crackled up her leg like lightning, giving us the dramatic mythical astronomy language and the reference to the storm god's thunderbolt. So she's pinned to the tree while they are both struck with lightning. This really sounds like a blood magic killing of Nissa Nissa that somehow involves moon meteors and weirwoods, if you ask me. Then comes the reference to her going under the sea. A trumpet blew. That's wrong, she thought. There are no trumpets in the drowned god's watery halls. Below the waves, the merlings hailed their lord by blowing into seashells. She dreamt of red hearts burning and a black stag in a golden wood with flames streaming from his antlers. This is a simply wondrous conflation of the sea and the woods here. She's almost dying in the actual woods, thinking that she's on her way to the watery halls, and dreaming of a wood, a golden wood containing burning hearts and a black stag with fiery antlers. Not only fiery antlers, the fire is streaming from the antlers like a river of fire. I think it's pretty clear that this burning stag man is a vision of resurrected Azor Ahai inside the weirwood net that would match resurrected Renly at the Blackwater, and a golden wood full of burning hearts seems like another way of talking about burning trees and heart trees. So what we're seeing here, I think, is Asha as a Nissa Nissa sacrifice going into the fiery green sea of the weirwood net where we find Azor Ahai living inside her dream wood. Yeah, think about this. This configuration again suggests the weirwood net as a dream of Nissa Nissa, which the Greenseers inhabit. Fans of Tad Williams' Otherworld series might recognize this idea. And I do recommend that series. That is a good one. Now, the conflation between the sea and the woods actually runs all through this chapter, as I was hinting at. Just like the moon drowning language appears no less than six times in this chapter. I believe I counted once. The Wayward Bride, more than any other, functions kind of like a dissertation on the green sea wordplay. So check out this quote from early on in the chapter. The sea was closer, only five leagues north, but Asha could not see it. Too many hills stood in the way, 
and trees, so many trees. The wolf's wood, the Northmen named the forest. Most nights you could hear the wolves calling to each other through the dark. An ocean of leaves, would it were an ocean of water. This is like Martin leading us, the horse, to water here. The trees are like an ocean, he tells us. The sea was closer, but she could not see it. It's pretty thick, and it continues as the chapter does. I cannot go home, she thought, but I dare not stay here much longer. The quiet of the woods unnerved her. Asha had spent her life on islands and ships. The sea was never silent. The sound of the waves washing against a rocky shore was in her blood. But there were no waves at Deepwood Mott. Only the trees, the endless trees, soldier pines and sentinels, beech and ash and ancient oaks, chestnut trees and ironwoods and firs. The sound they made was softer than the sea, and she'd heard it only when the wind was blowing. Then the sighing seemed to come from all around her, as if the trees were whispering to one another in some language that she could not understand. Tonight the whispering seemed louder than before. A rush of dead brown leaves, Asha told herself, bare branches creaking in the wind. So, is Asha writing a thesis on the similarities and differences of the woods to the ocean, or what? The whispering sound of the ocean of leaves is compared to the ocean proper, enhancing the correlation, but what's really interesting is that the whispering of the leaves is, of course, the communication of the green seers. So once again, we have a conflation of the idea of the green sea and the green seers. In the quote we pulled before this last one, Asha was hearing the wolves call to each other through the wood that is like an ocean, which again suggests the idea of people communicating through the trees of this wolf's wood. Asha passes off the whispering sounds as a rush of dead leaves and bare branches creaking in the wind, which kind of implies that the whisperings are coming from dead things, dead trees and dead tree leaves, which of course is right on the money since the weirwood net is made up of spirits of dead green seers. One of the most outstanding lines in this chapter is the one where the trees seem to be attacking the moon, which I've pointed to previously as evidence that green seers had something to do with pulling down the moon, as the Hammer of the Waters legend implies if the Hammer of the Waters is a moon meteor. Deep wood was aptly named. The trees were huge and dark, somehow threatening. Their limbs wove through one another and creaked with every breath of the wind, and their higher branches scratched at the face of the moon. The sooner we are out of here, the better I will like it, Asha thought. The trees hate us all deep in their wooden hearts. You'll have to forgive me for using the same quote in multiple episodes, but there are some things we can pull from this now which we weren't ready to do last time we read it. First, Deepwood is aptly named, because if a forest is supposed to represent the sea, well, it needs to be deep, like the sea. Second, Remember that these are the green sea trees which were whispering to one another in some secret language. And here we find them with wooden hearts. So now we can see that these trees really are intended to represent green seers and heart trees. And here they are, antagonizing the moon with hatred in their wooden hearts. As I mentioned, Asha is the moon maiden in this chapter, and the trees are equally antagonizing to her as they are to the real moon, both in this paragraph quoted here and in many others. This really takes flight when the Northmen attacking Ash's Ironborn dress up like trees to attack in stealth. 
Once again, we have tons of green sea metaphors. The wooden watchtower was the tallest thing this side of the mountains, rising twenty feet above the biggest sentinels and soldier pines in the surrounding woods. There, Captain said, Crum, when she made the platform. Asha only saw trees and shadows, the moonlit hills and the snowy peaks beyond. Then she realized that the trees were creeping closer. Oh ho! She laughed. These mountain goats have cloaked themselves in pine boughs. The woods were on the move, creeping toward the castle like a slow green tide. She thought back to the tale she had heard as a child about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men, when the green seers turned the trees into warriors. First, notice that the tree warriors coming from beneath the forest ocean are a green tide. As I said, the forest as green sea symbolism is rather persistent in this chapter. The trees appeared to be moving, of course, because Stannis' allies, the mountain clans of the north, have cloaked themselves in pine boughs. They're mountain goats, implying them as horned lords hiding in the forest, hiding in the weirwood net. Stannis sends the same message when Asha sees him as a black stag in a golden wood, as we just talked about. Asha's recalling of the legend of the green seers turning the trees to warriors could actually apply equally well to the others or to the green zombies, since both of them seem to have come out of the weirwoods in some sense. That's kind of a topic for another day, but we already know that the green zombies, if they do exist, come from the weirwood net in the sense that they are resurrected by the weirwood goddess and that they seem to all be green seers or skin changers, which is what enables them to be such good zombies. We also know that there are abundant hints that the others, the white walkers of the wood, the pale shadows that emerge from the dark of the wood, also come from the weirwood net as well. Notice what Asha sees when she looks out. Trees, shadows, moonlight, and snow. That's actually a perfect description of the others. They are white shadows that emerge from the dark of the wood. They are made of ice and snow, and they shine with reflected moonlight. So, shadows, moonlight, snow, and trees. That's the recipe. And babies, too. You need babies and blood magic, of course. But, anyways. The addition of sentinel trees and soldier pines also adds to the suggestion of tree warriors. So, once again, Martin is presenting an idea in multiple forms at the same time. Now, shifting from the wolf's wood to a wolf in the wood, I do have to point out that Jon Snow has a couple of wonderful green forest, green sea clues in a couple of his scenes beyond the wall that basically match these quotes from the Wayward Bride exactly, and they're equally explicit. They're less about anyone going into the Weirwood Net so much as what is in there and what may come out of it. This first one is from A Clash of Kings. A blowing rain lashed at Jon's face as he spurred his horse across the swollen stream. Beside him, Lord Commander Mormont gave the hood of his cloak a tug, muttering curses on the weather. His raven sat on his shoulder, feathers ruffled, as soaked and grumpy as the old bear himself. A gust of wind sent wet leaves flapping around them like a flock of dead birds. The haunted forest, John thought ruefully. The drowned forest, more like it. A drowned forest, with leaves like dead birds. But of course this simply suggests birds and trees with the spirits of the dead inside them, which is exactly what we see in Bloodraven's cave. 
The motif is emphasized again two paragraphs later when it says, Up ahead, a hunting horn sounded a quavering note, half drowned beneath the constant patter of the rain. This is not only a drowned forest, it's an undersea forest, and everything else here is drowned too, including that half-drowned horn of Jorman, I mean Jarman, Buckwell. Under the sea, you're supposed to be welcomed by horns, right? I mean, isn't that what Asha said? Now, even better is this quote from a John chapter later in A Clash of Kings at the Fist of the First Men. Closer at hand, it was the trees that ruled. To south and east, the wood went on as far as John could see, a vast tangle of root and limb painted in a thousand shades of green, with here and there a patch of red where a werewood shouldered through the pines and sentinels, or a blush of yellow where some broad leaves had begun to turn. When the wind blew, he could hear the creak and groan of branches older than he was. A thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. Ghost was not like to be alone down there, he thought. Anything could be moving under that sea, creeping toward the ring fort through the dark of the wood, concealed beneath those trees. Anything. How would they ever know? He stood there for a long time until the sun vanished behind the sawtooth mountains and the darkness began to creep through the forest. The communication of the green seers through the weirwoods is done through the rustling of the leaves, as we've seen many times. Thus, the wording here is very precise. A thousand leaves flutter, like a heart, and that is when, for a moment, the forest seemed a deep green sea. The forest also goes on as far as John can see, another hint at this devilish green sea wordplay. As for what is really moving under that green sea, it turns out to be the Others and their army of whites. In the prologue of A Game of Thrones, the Others are shadows which emerge from the dark of the wood, and here John uses that exact phrase— the dark of the wood, interchangeably with that sea of trees. Later, Jon Snow refers to the attack of the others and the whites on the fist of the first men as a tide of living dead men, adding to the forest as sea imagery and drawing a link to the green tide of forest soldiers that seem to be attacking Asha at Deepwood Mott. We've also seen that the others have a ton of symbolism about icy ponds and frozen lakes, and that they seem to parallel Dante's Lucifer, who's trapped in a frozen lake until Armageddon. That's obviously an idea that we'll follow up on in the future, and you can see right away how the aquatic symbolism of the others, coming from the icy lake, dovetails very nicely with the idea of them coming from the dark of the wood. For now, I mention it in brief, only to say that the things moving beneath the sea are associated with green seers, in my estimation. Now, Ghost is also said to be moving under that green sea, and Ghost has the exact coloring of a weirwood, of course, as John notes to himself many times, blood and bone. He's a weirwood ghost. Of course he's under the green sea. The Others and Ghost are both referred to as white shadows, actually, but unlike the Others... Ghost is not associated with ice or cold. Instead, he has eyes of hot red fire. They're called two red suns by John one time, for example. This seems a clue that not everyone under the sea is an other, and of course not, as we know Bran and Bloodraven are symbolically under that sea too, and they're not on Team Others. Down, tinfoil, down! As I've mentioned, there seems to be different parts of the Weirwood Net, a part which is under the control of the others, and one which is not, at the very least. Now, just to be clear, 
The reason why we look under the green forest sea and find both icy beings like the others and their dead servants, as well as a being whose symbolism implies fire like ghost, is because I believe that what we think of as ice and fire magic are both somehow tied to weirwood magic. So far in the Weirwood Compendium, we've been tracking down the connection between fire magic and green seer magic. And as I've said, there's an entire line of evidence and symbolism linking the others to green seer magic. Obviously, there is a lot of under-the-sea symbolism to explore, and obviously the Weirwood Net is a complex place with a lot going on that we've yet to learn about. But right away, just with the examples of Nissa Nissa moon maidens drowning or coming from the sea and with the symbolism of Grey King and Azor High being reborn in the sea, you can already see how the Green Seer, Green Sea wordplay makes a ton of sense. It fits seamlessly with everything that we've discovered in all of our research so far, and we haven't even talked about Danny yet. Now I'll close this episode with the freebiest of freebies, Sea Dragon Tower on Dragonstone, which has two relevant lines about it. First, it has a turnpike stair, which reminds us of Castle Pike on the Iron Islands, where we found all that sea dragon symbolism. And then there is this line from a Davos chapter of A Storm of Swords. The towers were dragons, hunched above the walls or poised for flight. The windworms seemed to scream defiance, while the sea dragon tower gazed serenely across the waves. What is the sea dragon tower doing? Why, gazing, of course. It could be doing anything at all, and Martin chose to portray it as gazing out to sea. A small detail, but a nice one. All right, well, that'll do it for Weirwood Compendium 6. And next time, I'll be back with Weirwood Compendium 7, which will deal with Daenerys and all her adventures in the Green Sea. Thanks again to Ravenous Reader, the poetess of the Nenimones, for bringing this wonderful symbolism to light. You might even say she dredged it up so that we could all have so much fun swimming in the green sea with her. See you all next time.